welcome everybody here this evening. I'm going to keep my introduction very short. Uh, I am very honored to welcome Professor Gloriana Davenport here today. Uh, she is, uh, as many of you know, one of the co-founders of the Media Lab and started a lab in 1987 on interactive cinema that was a long time before interactive became a, uh, a common term of art, I would say, in media studies. So. Uh, she also is going to have a, a I think, a co-presenter, but I'll let her introduce Donald, <laughs> Donald. Yeah, yeah. at that time. But uh, welcome. Okay, thank you. Uh, it's always a pleasure to come back to CMS. Um, I've had various interactions at CMS over the years. I knew Henry Jenkins well. I knew um, I know. Uh, William Eureka, you know, very well, and uh, several st worked with several students over the years, and actually have done this in other venues over the years. Um, so thank you for having me, and thank you for the introduction, and uh, I'm excited for you guys. Are you all having fun? <laughs> That's the big thing. That's the big thing at MIT. So um, I'm going to do something a little uh, different for me today, and uh, we'll see how it goes. We'll see what you have to say at the end. But I'm going to try to make the argument that uh, the network sensory landscape that we're currently building, the Responsive Media Environments Group is currently building at the Media Lab, um, actually is one of the futures for documentary. And uh, you know, the, the environment that's being built is based on sensors that are placed across the landscape. There's pretty much no human intervention. I use my camera and do a lot of documentary shooting, but so far I haven't edited a single bit of it. Um, and that's mostly because time has uh, been difficult. Uh, so, uh, I want to make that argument in the context of uh, a history of documentary, which isn't in any book. It's my own history, and much of it is work that was done here. Uh, William always encourages me to do this, so uh, we'll see how it goes. So uh, I would define cinematic documentary as a combination of curiosity, desire, and technology. And when we think of desire, we have to think about both the maker wanting to make something and the audience wanting to receive it. Um, at the very beginning of uh, documentary, film documentary, uh, John Grierson, a very famous maker, defined documentary as the creative treatment of actuality. And that's a really interesting definition. That does not say that documentary makers are doing anything that has to do with the truth. So I just really want to make that point because a lot of times people make the argument that documentary is about the truth. In 1929, John Grierson uh, took up the camera himself. It's the only film I believe he made himself. Uh, he was curious about a bunch of fishermen and took his camera out with those fishermen. Um, and the problem arose that <clears throat> when the fishermen came back from one of their outings and he expected them to come back with a full boat of catch, there was Zippo on the boat. And so he substituted a catch that was coming in on another boat and tried to uh, make that, and if you watch the film, it's very evident that there's a real problem. So, uh, you know, his, his uh, idea about actuality was sort of challenged by the fact actuality doesn't always happen the way the filmmaker wants it to happen. Um, so Ricky Leacock also, uh, in 1936, he was in school in England. Uh, nobody had any idea about what living on a banana plantation was like in uh, the Canary Islands. So he brought a couple of his school chums to the Canary Islands and made a documentary, but he made it exactly like a feature film. It was storyboarded 
and there were titles, and it was total process. It was, here's how the trees are planted, here's how they grow, here's how we harvest them. And uh, it had nothing to do with the wonderful stories that he writes about in his book, A Sense of Being There, um, because for one reason, there was no sound. So we think of the camera being turned on human beings, and human beings communicate with sound. They make a lot of decisions through sound. And when there's no sound, it's really hard to make a movie that asks why do people do what they do. Um, in the case of fishing, you can look at process. In the case of banana growing, you can look at process. But anything more complex than that is very challenging. Also realize that in the 20s and 30s, of course, very few people had flown on planes. And there were very few channels by which you might see different parts of the world. And so there was a big opportunity to uh, be able to go different places in the world and sort of fudge it a little bit. You know, you could bring somebody an experience that wasn't quite uh, why people did what they did. But that was all about to change. Ricky Leacock, who, how many of you have seen any of Leacock's films? Few, few people, okay. Uh, he was bound and determined that uh, he needed sync sound. And why he needed sync sound, in part, was very similar to today, sort of similar in some ways to today. All news was controlled by news briefings because all the camera people had big, heavy, clunky cameras and big, heavy tape recorders. And so they, they were not mobile. Um, so they would be called into Washington or wherever, and the story would be exactly what somebody wanted them to know. Um, and uh, there was a guy, Robert Drew, who worked for Life Magazine, and he had the idea that this sync sound technology could be used to go into crisis situations and represent sides of what was happening. I'm oversimplifying by a huge amount, but um, so, uh, so uh, here you see Ricky with uh, a camera on his shoulder. Here's the sound recorder. The microphone is for the best sound. The camera is in the best position for the picture. And here he is. This is what editing technology was like. It was reel to reel with a tiny viewer. You're moving the film through the reels. And when you get to the right place, you move both the sound and the picture, which have been synchronized after shooting, and cut them with a splicer. Very laborious. But what's fun about this is that Ricky wasn't shooting, in this case at least, these photos are thanks to Nell Cox. He wasn't shooting uh, what you would have expected. Yeah. Do you want to keep your telephone right now? That ain't, uh, that ain't mine. Uh, well, yes, ma'am. Uh, I don't want one. It's like I had over here. A black one? Yeah. Well, I'll give you this one. This is a brand new one. You have service here on this number where I've got it in. Uh, I'm sorry. Oh, I yeah, I know. Y'all wanted that phone number. Well, I'm sorry. I, I don't have any control over that at all, ma'am. That goes on the other side, ma'am. See, this, when you move, when you move like that, when you move out of the district, you have to give up this phone number. Uh, I don't have to have either one. It's in a different district, Mama, and that's what we've got to have. I don't have to have. If you've got a phone, you have. I don't. Mm -hmm. Whatever you want to do, I'll try to help you out as best I can. Our people, very much a part of your life. So I like showing that because, um, again, most people don't think of documentary as having anything to do with um, advertising. And Ricky was uh, able to convince, uh, sorry, I, now I have to get back to where I was. I don't know why that didn't play. I hope that's not going to happen uh, again. So. Uh, Ricky was able to convince AT&T that they should use those techniques. And he went out and he found this woman who actually really didn't believe uh, she couldn't have whatever number she wanted and that she'd had all of her life. 
And she'd moved, she'd only moved across the street. But the, getting that, imagine how hard it was to get that. Because you don't know. You walk into somebody's house, you go around with a repairman, you have no idea what you're going to see. But um, anyway, it's, it's fun. Um, so Ricky came on to faculty in 1969 here. And at that time, uh, things were getting smaller. This was a Super 8 film camera that we were developing at MIT. This was Sony had just released a camcorder. You carried 30 pounds on your side here and uh, shot through a very awkward uh, camera, which we later modified. And 20 years later, roughly 20 years later, the video camera was this size. It was a handy cam, a very small camera that you're familiar with today. Actually, today you use digital uh, storage in that camera. At that point, it was tape. And almost simultaneously with the camera getting to that side, there were a group of people at the Media Lab who wanted to uh, wear a video recording on their heads. It's not a good way for capturing a story, but they got a lot of data that could be looked at in various ways. And here is the Super 8 uh, camera being used. The microphone has a little light on it, so when uh, the camera pans over to the microphone, the uh, sound person beeps uh, and a little light shows up and that allows you to sync these things up. So the 80s and 90s, we were asking questions about um, how computation would impact cinema and how we could transform the audience from being a couch potato into, participatory, uh, into participating in story making. Um, editing had a huge impact on us. Not only was it clear that computation could solve the editing problem, and just for those of you who are totally unfamiliar with film, film celluloid you cut in a room on a table. We moved up from the little viewer up to a table. But you know, you would hang big pieces of sound and picture up with various pins all over the room and hope you could find them again. So video gave us the hope that we'd be able to see those bits and pieces. We'd be able to make sequences faster. But actually getting the interface right was very problematic. But simultaneously with that, we started thinking about, well, could people view film differently? And this is, I'm going to show some of this later, but this is an interface to uh, Elastic Charles, which was built between 1988 and 1990, where we tried to film the landscape of the Charles River and some of the action activities of it. Um, and we made tools that allowed people to put links in the video. And um, uh, so they sort of could make their own pathway through this morass of clips. Um, and in the 90s and 2000s, we were just beginning to incorporate sensors both as a trigger for content uh, and also as content itself. And this is a little film, but um, these were the first uh, sensors that we built with Joe Paradiso. Um, and the idea was to understand that people, uh, as people moved through, that was a rear projection of pigeons on a landscape. And <clears throat> every time somebody walked through, the pigeons flew away. But like all pigeons, the pigeons came back. So, <laughs> so that was a, sort of one example. Um, and we'll see a few more. Uh, Gershon is actually in the room, sitting back there. But um, he developed a browsing environment for the Media Lab. And basically, there are uh, many, many live sensors taking real-time data into a virtual environment that runs in a Unity engine and uh, mapped uh, different types of activity within that. You could see maybe Twitter feeds. You could see. Um, people more 
more or fewer people, and you could listen to the sound of the laboratory, uh, I guess. So this, this particular piece was um, very inspiring to me um, because it's, I was beginning to work on this large project uh, in Tidmarsh in, uh, in Plymouth, Massachusetts. And I was beginning to think about um, how could we, the question, the, the Tidmarsh question is really can we see a ecological, uh, can we see ecological processes? Can we touch ecological processes? Can we hear ecological processes? And uh, we have a lot of scientists working on this, but we wanted some way that the public could actually touch and feel Tidmarsh. And so uh, a lot of the work that Donald's going to show uh, and that we will try to show uh, with difficulty um, involves uh, how these virtual worlds might be used with sensors uh, where the landscape is really built up of sensor data. And in 2014, Gershon and Joe Paradiso published a paper in uh, Scientific American, Living in the Connected World, was the ex extrasensory perception. And the question was, how would these ubiquitous sensor environments change our perception? And Gershon's, a lot of Gershon's work is there. You might put up your hand, Gershon, so everybody can see who you are. Um, so he is, uh, will shortly be defending his PhD work at the Media Lab, and after him come several other PhDs um, who are helpful to what we're about here. Um, I don't know how many of you went to the space symposium that was at the Media Lab two Sundays ago. Not too many people. Too bad. It was amazing. Uh, anyway, uh, I wanted to end this section with uh, something Doug Trumbull said there. Uh, he uh, is very well known. Uh, he worked on, two, he was the main artist on um, uh, 2001 Space Odyssey, uh, where the, the last sequence, if you remember, is this set of really amazing visuals that allow you to float through space. Uh, those are all created with special effects, not even special effects, sort of uh, arty effects, where art was still a big part of making them. And he's, he is now working on new cameras, 3D, 4, 4K cameras that can be attached to telescopes like this, which will allow you to travel, really travel through space. And he's designing pods that allow you to come in and this is going to be his new media experience. When I was last out at his studios in Western Mass, which was probably 10 years ago, he was building uh, an environment, a theater envi environment, that would shake you around when the world was you know, exploding around you. Um, and he said uh, a couple of Sundays ago, I have completely flip-flopped. I do not want to make fictional stories anymore. I want to show what is going on in space for real. And the idea here is that we have sensors now. Um, they're not just cameras, but cameras are part of the suite. Uh, not just microphones. Th those were the standbys in the 60s, and before that was the camera itself. Um, we have many other kinds of sensors that we can use to make experiences and um, Hopefully, those experiences speak to documentary drivers. So um, documentary drivers, to me, are, these are a few of them, but I, I think they're the main ones. What are we curious about? What do we need to know? After everybody's traveled all over the world and seen every environment that they can and traveled on a zillion channels to every place in the world, do we really want to see more films about, um, of course, we want to know places are in crisis, and of course, we want to build empathy. But it's very different going to, let's say, a place like Iraq now and building a film 
uh, than it was 20 years ago. And today, most likely, it will be built through social media. The really interesting pieces will be built through social media because we need to ask what level of access can be achieved or negotiated. And a single person can't really achieve ubiquitous access. And we also have to ask, you know, what kind of technologies can we construct? So we're constructing new technologies for these sensor environments. And then finally, we want to ask, can we change people's minds? And that's a really important piece of what drove documentary makers to do what they're doing. And one of the things I will argue about the new documentary is that um, we're looking at changing people's mind around different issues. So um, Brian Bradley, who uh, uh, has been working with me on a movie that uh, Ricky shot at MIT in 1969. And I wanted to show a little of it because it is being shown at the MIT Museum in full later in April and uh, again in uh, around um, graduation time. Uh, and it is really the story of Ricky's first venture to MIT. And it's also a fabulous story of access and changing people's mind. And the setup for it is that the uh, November Actions Committee in 1969 uh, wanted to create some uh, disruptions at MIT in order to change MIT's view of the instrumentation lab. The Draper Instrumentation Lab was doing a lot of work on uh, military um, technology. And so, uh, they were going to create a pretty big uh, demonstration. And the president of MIT and the faculty uh, eventually got an injunction against uh, this disruption, the disruptors with particular names coming on campus. And they also worked very hard to keep police off campus. And it was a pretty remarkable, given what had happened in, uh, at Harvard and at Columbia, it was a pretty remarkable thing and tells you something about this institution. And the reason why I show it is I have a very big fondness for this institution because I think it's full of very brainy people who talk together. And um, uh, I think there are certainly parallels to what's happening now uh, and trying to, but they're not direct parallels because nothing as yet is really happening on this campus. But, um, so Ricky writes in his book, to my great surprise, Jerome Wiesner, who was then provost of MIT, asked me if I would be interested in teaching documentary film as a visiting professor, so I packed a bag and took the bus to Boston. However, when I got there in 1969, the place was in turmoil over the war in Vietnam. Chaos was everywhere. My son Robert joined me and we started filming. Um, I'm going to show you a very brief clip and I'm actually going to skip through parts of it um, because it's a little bit too long to show here. But uh, we start out with President Johnson in a faculty committee meeting uh, trying to figure out just what the police are doing. Uh, and you said you were afraid that they're going to be more triggered than that. That is, they're going to, not having been called into action today anymore, right? Do you have that feeling, Joe? I do, very much so. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, ch the chief is doing a marvelous job of keeping this. That's the police tank, chief. He's got his limitations and all by it. We got a little radio and tell him, John. All right, otherwise we'll have to go through it all again. Yeah. yeah. All right, we'll have to. But if we could scale down the. The presidents over there. It's not the presidents. There aren't that many there. What are the numbers? There are now and, and will be around the clock. 10 at IL 6, 4 at IL 12, 4 at IL 14. So this is the police presence. 10. And then we have. But these are, 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 are MDC police. Inside. Every police will be on the street. 
No, these are MDC police on the streets. They're very, they're well prepared. There's no question about that. I'm gonna just. Sliding as they go along. Two are are sort of siding as they. Well, some of us. The kids there too are are sort of siding. So this is the student advisory group. And I think there are a good many of them. I happen to run into a guy I know from Harvard who's kind of partially radical. He's there. Um, yet he was saying, well, I think we ought to be obstructive. That's the only thing we can reasonably do. Then he added, but if the police are there in large numbers and they're going to bust it, I'm not going to do it. Um, you know, I'll leave because I just don't want to bust it in. Um, and I think they might reach, there's some possibility that it won't be a matter of just changing tactics, of escalating tactics in this sense that there's, they will at some point begin to approach other means too. SACS conversion conference is an example of the kind of thing I'm trying to say. I think Noam Chomsky's speech this morning might have set some of them thinking about how effective they really are being. I, I think, you know, they still have some confidence. Well, he said that um, there's one particularly good line about um, tactics not being liberal or radical, but only effective or not effective. And he himself, you know, played the, the theoretician and said that he wasn't really a good predictor himself. Um, you know, for instance, the sanctuary, he didn't think it would work, and he said, and look, it did. He's been... And then, very shortly thereafter... What to me is, what to me is important about Ricky not finishing that film is what he says at the end of his, of this. We had very good access to what was going on with the faculty and they tried to reason with various student groups opposed to the war. Some of the others also allowed us to be privy to what they were up to, but the more extreme groups were putting up signs, Leacock is Wiesner's lackey. We got some interesting material of the conflict, but I did not want to make a film of it because I would isolate me from an important part of the student body and would change nobody's mind. It was a very practical start. So a part of the, the documentary urge, in some sense, is this desire to change people's minds about something. Uh, I'm going to move through this pretty quickly, and I probably won't show the media clips because I want to spend maximum time on um, Doppelmarsch. But landscape has fascinated me for a long time. Uh, I grew up in New York City. I grew up many years of my growing up were east of the L. Um, the L was a very, very dark train that went down Third Avenue and separated those people that were east of Third Avenue to those people who are west, uh, uh, well, west of, it was better to be west of Third Avenue, let me put it that way. And east of Third Avenue, my, my parents brought, bought a double brownstone and my mother had three years of architecture school uh, she decided to um, design the house herself, so it was a very odd, bizarre house. Uh, there were seven kids in the house, so many people came through that. But that transformation of Third Avenue was absolutely critical to New York as we know it today. And um, then I moved to Maine, and I, uh, one of the jobs I had was to rake blueberries in the summer. Uh, commercially, and I thought when I started to get uh, 
good. I started to get the camera bug. I should go back and make a film of these beautiful fields with these five different groups who raked. There were Native Americans. There were local people. There were people from Can uh, Canadian French. There were migrants from uh, Florida. And they all lived on the land, tented on the land, and worked during the day. And we got permission to do that. But halfway through this film, and the idea was make a 10-minute beautiful film. That's what Ricky said. It would, it would take you to Hollywood. Um, but along the way, they introduced some larger plastic boxes. It was the first strike uh, that had ever happened in Maine on the blueberry fields. We went out and raised some more money. We filmed both sides of the strike and got kicked off the land. So that's another access issue. That's when somebody doesn't want you to film for some reason, and we had to figure out how to uh, move on. Uh, I then, between 1983 and 86, made a, decided to, I knew the World's Fair was coming to New Orleans in 1984, and I thought, wouldn't it be interesting to ask the question of how did these large-scale urban events change a landscape? and very politically dicey, very economically dicey. Many people who thought they were going to make a million bucks on the fair, other people who felt like their whole way of life was being uh, decimated. Uh, tall buildings were going up. Uh, the, the so I'm not going to show that, but we wound up with sequences, uh, three hours of sequences, and that became a database for many interactive experiments, such as we're having interact, you know, we're having experiments now on the landscape axis. Um, uh, and some of those were about editing systems, what should editing systems look like, but others of them were about how we can use computation to bring somebody a particular storied experience. So it was what kind of agents, of story agents, can we have that can go through a large collection of material um, and, in some sense, know you? And um, uh, we then worked on Elastic Charles with a group of people, uh, a, a group of students, uh, and we called this a hypermedia journal. Again, it's not going to play here, and I'm not going to go. Uh, pull out the footage, but basically we uh, were able to bring it up on a Macintosh, uh, two Macintosh, uh, a Macintosh with an gra extra graphics card in it, and then two monitors. And you had the video playing on one monitor where we could overlay the graphic micons, and then we had the micons running here. Um, we tried to shoot the river, but the best way to shoot the river was with um, time lapse handheld time-lapse. So the question of how do you capture the environment of a river was already in my psyche at that point. Um, we then made uh, transformational environments, trying to work more with sensors to understand how people might explore a physical space. and. Um, uh, I'm, I'm also not going to search for this picture, but uh, in this environment, this was the water environment, we had built a big whale, and you had to, uh, there were explorers and guides, and the uh, explorers explored the space, and the guides sent signs and symbols to the explorer, and you had to kneel down on your knees and shout into the whale's ear, and then the whale would sing to you. Um, and. Uh, <laughs> It proved very interesting, but once you understood, once you as a guide understood the whale as a character and that you could direct it, direct it, it worked pretty well. And uh, in 2003, I was in Media Lab Europe and collaborated with a bunch of uh, two of the students at uh, Media Lab Europe and another faculty member, Carol Strohecker. We had the idea of a nature trailer, and this, in this environment, you could wear a backpack, and the backpack had a, could sense the wind, and you also had a uh, weather feed, and we buried pieces of um, 
video into the environment. So you would walk with this backpack. It would also tell you how long it would take to get home. So if it was going to be terrible weather, which it often was in Ireland, it would tell you, you know, run back on the trail. But you walked along, and then all of a sudden it would signal to you that you should walk over here, and you'd get a little piece of the Selkie story. So we were experimenting of how to bring movies out of the viewing environment of the screen into some kind of dynamic viewing environment. Not as sophisticated as what Gershon is doing now, but nonetheless of interest. Um, and the last piece of this, in this section of the talk, was the audio bench, which was a PhD thesis in 2005, where the student wanted to do something from the bench's point of view, make the bench into a character, give the bench perception. And uh, the bench sat out on the media lab, uh, outside the media lab, and it recorded 24-7 audio. And then she made an editing program that would look for shifts in the audio and put together, if you sat on it and didn't say anything for five minutes, um, it would tell you a story of its past. Um, and the, the trick here was to ask what kind of algorithm could you write that could do that very quickly in terms of audio. Not, not easy. And, and it wasn't very smart. It was just looking for dramatic change, dramatic shifts. A siren would come in, that would be part. Or a kid would be playing with a mother very close to the microphone, and you would get a sense that it was present. And the system could parse those kind of uh, changes. The sensory, the network sensory landscape. The question is how can we or will we witness landscape change ecological transformation? And the driving force for this particular project, set of projects, idea, inspiration, is thanks to my husband, Evan Schulman, who is a cranberry farmer and farmed this land, which sits in the middle of a large watershed. So it's 600 plus acres in Plymouth. Um, there were several conditions that made us think that we as a family should get out of farming. Uh, we needed a plan. We needed a way that we weren't just giving the land away or letting the land go fallow. It was a big challenge. It was a big project. Um, so uh, what could we do? First thing was we were going <coughs> to, we found a kind of an easement for conservation and restoration that we could put on the wetlands. Oh, by the way, cranberries grow in wetlands, former wetlands. They've cut down swamps, they've flattened the fields. Um, so we put this, the center of this piece into an easement. Uh, we stopped farming it. We made it into the largest freshwater, ecological freshwater restoration in the state ever. So that gave us a lot of clout. We created conditions for a wildlife sanctuary to occur. I won't go into detail on that. And um, we established something called Living Observatory, which was designed as a collaborative endeavor of scientists, artists, engineers, um, practitioners, agency people, uh, to, for the science interpretation and public experience of what took place. And I went to my friend Joe P. Uh, when we were right at the beginning of doing this. Um, so let's, uh, before I go into that, just ecological restoration uh, defined is the process of assisting the recovery of an ecosystem that has been <coughs> degraded, damaged, or destroyed. And here you see an old map of that property where there's kind of a, a pond, and then it flows through to Bartlett Pond, and then to the ocean. And here you see um, a GPR, which shows you that there are deep peat bowls underneath the wetlands. And here you see a much clearer picture of what the old stream looked like when it was farmed, 
And here you see three and a half miles of new stream channel that was dug. It, it doesn't look exactly like that, but th this is a dramatic transformation of a piece of land. Um, and the dramatic, this is cranberry bogs out of production for about two years, three years. Um, and this is what came on the ground for one year, many of those. And this is what it looks like today. So basically, we wanted to reset the hydrology of the landscape. We wanted to make it wet again. And then we want, uh, at the end of construction, the start of the restoration uh, trajectory. So when we started that project, I went to Joe P. And I think Gershon might have been there. It was early days. I might have talked to Joe P. first. And I said, could we take the technology that you built into the, or could we think about what you did in Duffel Lab and think about how that could apply to Tidmarsh? And could we make a virtual world of Tidmarsh that could go through this magic time zero that you have with restoration? I mean, we massively reset the trajectory, the natural trajectory of that landscape. Now, lots of people say, well, what you, were you restoring to? Evan had a great saying. He said, we're restoring to the future, for the future. So this is the beginning of some work that Gershon, um, Donald, Brian Mayton, and others have done. Again, that movie is not going to run, so I'm not going to I wish it would, but I'm sure it won't. Why? Why, why, why? OK, this is Joe P's take on this. Oh, no movie. Yeah, I love things that I don't know really what they're good for yet, but I know they're going to change everything. That's the sweet spot, right? You're getting involved in something you know is going to be huge. You don't know exactly what it's going to be. You've got the tiger by the tail, but you know it's going to change the whole world. And this feels a little bit like that. Tim Marsh was fascinating for me. So that was um, an EMC. But you think he, he thinks he knows what the problem is here. <laughs> um, so uh, EMC is a sponsor of the Media Lab. They came back and sort of uh, said, well, we'll will come out with you and we'll make um, a cable cast for you. So that went out on the whole EMC network. That's OK. I don't, I don't I think I have a lot of. I don't know really what they're good for yet, but I know they're going to change everything. That's the sweet spot, right? You're getting involved in something you know. <laughs> OK. So. And the first thing we had to do was build a network. This is uh, uh, the, the only way we could get high-speed um, internet to this landscape was to go to Comcast. For Comcast to even think about doing anything for you, you have to be in 300 feet of a roadway where Comcast is. So when you're a farm and you have five different barns on the farm and you have no separate addresses, it's all one address. There's a house address and the barn address, and it's all the same thing. They say, we can't deal with you. So you had to make friends with people who were doing installations for Comcast, and then we could get action. And the guy who's installing says, oh, yeah, you have a place that's 300 feet, I know, from this drop of Comcast. And he gets it into a barn. And then Gershon and Brian Mayton have to figure out how to get it from there. Um, Brian Mayton. Uh, built a lot of sensors. And now the infrastructure has um, a lot of environmental sensors, which I'll tell you what they measure in a minute, or some of the things. They measure light, barometric pressure, humidity, um, moisture, humidity. What's the other thing they measure? Um, and microphones throughout the landscape recording 24-7 audio. And all of this is being sent back to MIT. This is what one of the little first-generation sensors looks like. Um, it has an ID. Um, and Brian Mayton is now uh, going, making the second-generation sensors. So they do temperature, humidity, barometric pressure. They can, some of them do wind, light level, uh, motion. You can 
do soil moisture, soil redox, and you can do external temperature probes for water quality and air quality. So we have an enormous amount of data coming in. We have that kind of data, we have audio data, we have cameras. And I'll just take you very quickly. Okay, so they have a site, tidmarsh.media.mit.edu. You're all welcome to go on it. Um, it will uh, give you, uh, there are a bunch of different movies down here you can look at, including um, some uh, um, time lapses of the construction itself. Uh, there's um, uh, various projects, and then there's, uh, you can go to the live data portion of the site. We should be able to go to the live portion. Okay, so here you see a camera. This is what the wetlands looks like now. And below that, you can look at what some of the environmental variables are and where those sensors are located. And you can, if we switch to the impoundment, we should be able to get some live audio, which takes a moment to load, but we'll see. So right now, uh, there's another person in the group looking at can they take that live audio and listen for events in it? Uh, recognize events, let's say bird calls, and give you an idea of what uh, the live frogs, mice, uh, what the, the, live, the, the wildlife is like in the impoundment area. Um, Again, I'm sorry that these movies are difficult, but this one I think will run. Um, very early on, as these sensors were being developed, uh, Catherine DiNazio, who was a student in one of Joe P's courses, she made this flower that went in a stream bed. And uh, the idea here was really to change people's minds about the importance of the stream. Morning, friends. So I treat not this. Not. Who's there? Water. Water. What are you doing in my creek? Oh, I have a helicopter. I am rolling on the floor, laughing out loud. So the idea here is to make a compelling uh, object that uh, brings your attention to the data. This hasn't been installed at Tidmarsh yet because we need to go into a second generation of the technology and. Catherine has taken a position. She used to be in, was she in CMS? No, she was in civic media. Um, she has taken a faculty position at Emerson and is extremely busy with all those wonderful things like faculty meetings. Um, but uh, this was a, a joke, an AI joke engine that was put together with this real-time sensing of the stream. And to me, it's sort of a mini documentary object. Uh, it captures that data. That data will exist for a long time. It's creating almost like a narration track automatically. Um, one of the things that we imagine doing in the future is a cross-reality log. The logs are really important. Logs were put out across the landscape as part of the restoration. Um, they have moss and mushrooms and enormous number of bugs crawling around in them. And as these decompose, these are part of the carbon cycle. So when we talk about uh, wanting to, uh, to improve the carbon storage on Earth, this is part of the process that does that. Um, and so what if you could hear all those insects in the log and hear little pieces of the log falling off? Another thing that we've talked about but we haven't really gotten to is what about listening to sap running up a tree? If, if the tree is calling for water and 
there is water, it will get more water. Uh, if it's in a drought cycle, it might sound quite differently. Another thing that the Responsive Environments Group is doing um, uh, is thinking about how musicians can use this environment in order to make their music. So again, the movie isn't playing, which is unfortunate. But um, the idea here is to make tools and bring in different composers to use this real-time data to map what's happening in the data. So in, in that, what you should be seeing is moving across the landscape and actually seeing the different data coming up. And the, the music uh, is being mapped to uh, the environment, which is a really neat idea when you think about musicians all over the world being able to tune into Tidmarsh and um, play with the data. Because otherwise, the data is just sitting there as a big uh, you know, uh, repository. Gershon, who is the, uh, as I say, sort of the leader of the pack in that, I think he's the, he's the oldest PhD uh, in the group, uh, Brian Mayton being the second uh, more mature one who came in just in time to do this terrific job of engineering. Um, Gershon has ha really was the consultant in some sense who said you don't want to walk around the property with your cell phone in your face. We want to do something with pure audio. And so he's working on bone conduction audio and the idea of whether we can tell uh, what you're looking at or what you're attending to or what you're interested in. Um, and then augment the sound from all those microphones that are out there, augment the sound that you're hearing. So let's say you see ripples in the water far away you can't see what's happening there, but maybe you can actually hear that there are, there's some wildlife scurrying around, or there's some frogs jumping in, or some other aspect of the environment. And both of these things are about, or this and the log, is to be able to see and touch uh, and, and hear things that you can't hear, hear see, or touch in the environment. We also have Housley Bergun, who I think was also uh, in CMS, actually. Uh, uh, he has been recording lots of people who have uh, had um, uh, helped with the restoration and been part of the farm for a long time. And as you walk around, this will be a phone app where you can turn it on and some of these voices you'll be able to hear these voices mixed with his music. So it's a pretty neat application, again, for connecting you uh, to the marsh. Um, and finally, Donald, who's here to give you a live demo that will hopefully work better than my movies do, um, has been working on this virtual landscape. So a virtual browser, again, in Unity, uh, that looks a lot like the real landscape, uh, where the ground cover is mapped to uh, what camera feeds are seen. Uh, sorry, that's not going to run. So I'm not going to play it. Uh, that should have been taking you through a very beautifully rendered environment, but you'll probably be showing it. He's also thinking about how we can make creatures and what kind of creatures should populate this landscape and whether it should be in some way what gamified. And uh, here's a bunch of the collaborators. That's Spencer, I think, back there, and Donald. And uh, they're working on both, on, on two sorts of interfaces. One is uh, um, headset that you wear and you're like almost in a car environment and then HoloLens uh, being another environment that allows you to examine what's happening on the landscape. 
I think that this is really a movie, so. It's okay, I can't show these videos. Okay. So, so I'm gonna let Donald take over. You can fire stuff up, but I'm, uh, I, I call it, this is sort of right now like an ecology of applications. Like the first thing happened was they wired the landscape. Then they had all this data. Then different people come in and think about different ways that they can use the data, all with the idea that these would be public-facing applications. These would be things that you could actually log on to, you can download, they're about to put up a new uh, Unity download for you. Um, and to me, they uh, do give you a sense of being there. It's an altered sense of being there. So it's something between altered reality and documentary. Um, and uh, I think the big question is, you know, Ricky's saying, I didn't want to do it because it wasn't going to change anybody's behavior or anybody's mind. So how we, what we like these type of applications to do is to make you more aware of the natural world, more aware of ecological processes, and really um, have, incorporate them as ways of seeing into nature things that you can't see. And we can't see those things, I'll argue, because the time frame of nature is very different from human time. Uh, we have taken deep cores of Tidmarsh. We can go back almost to the glacier age. So we can go back almost 10,000 years. Um, we can't do that in a movie form. We could have a big interface that allowed you to roll through the core. Um, we can look at that core from the point of view of pollen. We can look at the core from the point of view of uh, carbon. Uh, we can, we have a scientist who's looking at how rapidly microbial interaction in the soil occurs. So rather than the MIT film where you see massive people on the street, what happens if you look into the soil and there's a mass of microbes chomping away and giving off gas and, you know, it's a, it, it is a different way of looking at the physics of our landscape and perhaps raises different questions about the urgency for us to care more and, um, figure out strategies for uh, um, improving our air quality, our water quality, uh, the amount of carbon storage we have, rather to think about, do we really want to cut down 300 trees here? Uh, it also brings a lot of, for us, a lot of um, issues up about the cranberry landscape in general in Massachusetts which is 14,000 acres in cranberry farming, most of which will leave Massachusetts in the next 10 years. Um, and whether we can reclaim and restore, m many of those properties are close to the ocean. Many of them, if restored, could be floodplain and uh, uh, freshwater areas in a time when the sea level is rising and you're going to lose some of the shoreline. So they can be really important resources. So we think all of these things, definitely Living Observatory has helped expand the dialogue of what will happen to those properties. So Donald, take it away. So hello everybody, my name is Don. Uh, I'm a master's student at the Responsive Environments Group with Joe Perdizo. And uh, thank you, Professor Gloriana and Professor Ed, for uh, uh, inviting me to share the work. Uh, and uh, before we jump into a live demo, uh, I'm going to show you some of the videos that unfortunately we, we couldn't see because of a technical problem, and I hope I won't run into it. But I don't think I will because it's the browser. Um, so this is Doppelmarch. Uh, in 30 seconds, we're going to spend a few minutes so uh, these are the real-time sensor data coming in uh, in the game, uh, and they, they affect the wind in the game. So the grass uh, moves to how the wind roughly is. Uh, when it rains, we trigger rain in the game. When it snows, it's as well. We also mapped um, fog and humidity and, and uh, day and night and 
we're trying to map uh, elements of reality as much as we can to give this, this better sense of being there, this illusion of being there, although it will be great to go there and, and experience the landscape um, physically, but if we can't, uh, well, the virtual al alternative could get better and better. Oh, that's, uh, that's Joe Paradiso, our professor, and uh, this is his modular synthesizer, but that video played automatically. Uh, so Gershon, Brian, Spencer, and a bunch of other students built um, this interesting HoloLens idea, which is called Hakoniwa, which in Japanese means a garden in a box. And uh, it's, a, it's a HoloLens uh, demonstration. Uh, so you see the virtual terrain is, uh, is, is on the table, and the HoloLens allow you uh, to mix this reality with the physical world. You can see the clouds, and, and uh, where you point your head allows you to hear the microphone that is placed at that location. And uh, the ukulele plugs that you hear are, are the live data updating. Uh, and this is all in real time. Uh, and the last video that I'd like to show is about Doppelab. And um, I'm not, not going to show all of it, but that's the Japanese version of Doppelab. <laughs> uh, and uh, it shows some of the action, I think all of the action. So, yeah, no subtitles, like watching anime without subtitles. So, uh, these are the sensor nodes inside the buildings. Um, uh, the cubes are sponsors, uh, people who uh, visit the Media Lab and Sponsor Week. Who are wearing RFID tags. Who are wearing RFID tags, and every time they, they pass next to the, to the reader, uh, we, we render this, this uh, cube. And uh, the interesting idea in Topple Lab is also the ability to go back uh, in time. Uh, and it, uh, all these sensor data are cached in the database, and at any time you can recall these, these actions. And, and that idea inspired uh, a, a really nice feature in, in Doppelmarch, which is, uh, can we go back in time and see how the weather was, uh, uh, how was the wildlife, roughly, that we're scanning and, and, uh, uh, and monitoring. And um, so uh, I think that's a good time for the live demo. I'm not going to go through the presentation that I have here, except for this one slide. So this is a project that I collaborated with uh, with another student at the Responsive Environment Group. Uh, this is a real uh, quadcopter, a drone, uh, and you can command this drone from this uh, video game-like uh, real-time strategy. Uh, so you can, you know, right-click on the on the screen and it goes there, both in real life and and in the game engine, and uh, then you can mix the the two views. That's a small note about that. Um, so um, let's go into the live demo. Now I need the demo gods to be with me. And um, I was always interested in the idea of presence. And um, once I got to the media lab as a visiting researcher, uh, Gershon and Brian told me we have this virtual environment that, that looked uh, uh, less polished than this environment, but it had the real-time sensor data. Um, it had the, the nice sonification, and, um, and they told me to start painting the terrain in a better way, in a, in a, in a more polished way. So I started going there to, to Ted March, uh, taking pictures, spending some time there, uh, touching the, the, the grass and, and playing with the soil just to get a feel of what this, this place is. And then um, I come back home or to the lab and I start painting. And then uh, before every member week, uh, I'll like paint some more and do the changes based on what's happening in the real environment. And then one day I was like, maybe I can automate that. <laughs> and, and I guess that's, that's what my thesis is going to be. It's how do we reconstruct this reality? We call it resynthesizing reality because we're all big fans in the group of modular synthesizers. So um, how do we resynthesize reality? How do we capture the, 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 the elements of reality that will allow us to reconstruct a really basic uh, reality that is dynamic, that is like a documentary, but that gives uh, the, the, the user the ability to, to see what he or she wants to see, to be engaged in a game, in a video game. And, and I'm a big video game uh, lover. I spend, you know, 
hours and hours uh, on Pokemon as a kid, then I wanted to be in these environments. I never wanted to leave these environments. I would go sit under a tree and play Pokemon. It's, I loved it that, that much, you know, and not really Pokemon Go later on, but I kept playing <laughs> video games, like being immersed in virtual environments, World of Warcraft, you name it. And uh, all of these ideas inspire what we do here. At least that's, that's the excuse that I put to myself. That these are ideas that I'm playing with are engaging me in my research. Uh, so right now we are in this vehicle, and um, I couldn't bring the, the Oculus um, to, to, to have like another kind of a live demo and, and where you can uh, get immersed into this field. Uh, so, um, 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 so th thus this demo, because um, if we connect the Oculus to the computer now, uh, you are in a spaceship, in a space looking, in a, it looks like a spaceship. Or an all-terrain really. vehicle. Yeah, and you can move around and, and, um, and experience uh, the landscape this way. Except and you don't fall in the water. <laughs> yeah, because you're hovering. And so we have two versions. One version is if you're opening it from a computer, you won't see this vehicle. And because we want to emphasize on the idea of presence, of like just explore this environment. But once you, are, you put a head-mounted display on, uh, if you walk in an environment without being in a vehicle or without having a static object in VR to ground your, your vision, you will feel dizzy and you will get this, this nausea effect. Uh, and one of the tricks uh, that I saw in a couple of papers uh, talk about putting uh, the user inside a vehicle and allowing the user to drive this vehicle, similar to uh, you know looking through the window while you are in an airplane. You know you don't get dizzy when you do that, <laughs> and and that's the same idea here. So yeah, I can turn the the flashlight on and off. At least that works. Uh, as you can see on on the on the left mini map, uh, where we see the birds that uh, we're we're working on tracking, uh, but this is. O only for, for the moment? Yeah, well, we, I know that some people uh, have to absolutely leave the room by 7, so we need to bring in the food. So what I would recommend is that we kind of overlap those activities sure. a little bit. We'll, we'll allow sure. the, the food to come in and uh, also allow people to come down and converse if they would like. But first and foremost, I think we want to thank uh, both of our speakers, but especially 